Welcome to the SCI Forum podcast. This podcast was produced by the Northwest Regional Spinal Cord Injury System in the University of Washington Department of Rehabilitation Medicine. The Northwest Regional SCI System is dedicated to improving the lives of people with SCI through excellent patient care, research, and education. To learn more about our podcasts and videos or to make a donation, go to sci.washington.edu. This podcast was taken from a live SCI forum presentation and may refer to images or visual information that helps to illustrate the spoken content. You can watch the video on our website or YouTube channel. Go to sci.washington.edu slash videos. Welcome to the Spinal Cord Injury Forum. My name is Jeannie Hoffman, and I'm a rehab psychologist in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, and I'm the co-director of the Northwest Regional Spinal Cord Injury System here at the University of Washington. Tonight, we are pleased to present the first of two forums on spasticity and spinal cord injury, and we have three speakers tonight. Uh, the first will be Dr. Rena Reyes, who is the medical director of the UW Medicine SCI Rehabilitation Program, and she's going to talk about the causes of spasticity, medical and pharmaceutical treatments currently available for it. Uh, Dr. Reyes will be followed by Amy Eicherangel, who's a physical therapist, and Gerilyn Bertolotti, occupational ther therapist, both of whom work at Harborview Medical Center. They're going to discuss the physical treatment modalities such as stretching, vibration, heat, and others. And after the presentation, we will open it up uh, for questions from the audience. Please uh, join me in welcoming our panelists. I'm Dr. Rena Reyes, and I'm glad to have co-presenters with me. We're going to be providing an overview of spasticity man management today as the fir first part of the spasticity, uh, two-part spasticity forum. And the title is The Good, the Bad, and the Not-So-Ugly, because what we hope to do is provide an overview of the different facets of uh, spasticity and its impact on treatment in spinal cord injury in particular. So I'd like to start talks about spasticity and treatment about with uh, this composition that I found many years ago on one of these websites, where people were allowed to submit um, compositions related to spasticity. And uh, this was sub submitted by Christine D. The reason I like this is it really captures uh, the dual nature of spasticity as well as the ultimate treatment goal. So I'll just read this briefly for you. It's a blessing to stand, dress, transfer, and walk, sometimes a friend and sometimes a foe. Spasticity within, which way will it go? Compromise, confusion, cross messages, don't know. Are you my friend or are you my foe? I count my blessings one by one, able to stand but one day I'll run. Walking was taken away for a while, heartache and sorrow, not able to smile. The battle began fierce, gruesome, and strong. The battle I win no matter how long. Spasticity within, friend or foe. I'll keep your goodness, the rest gotta go, which is really the theme of this talk. So this sets the stage for us very nicely for this overview of spasticity. We're gonna start with an introduction of spasticity, move into the principles, the goals of treatment, and the challenges in spasticity treatment then talk about the pharmacologic or medication-based management, including some surgical management strategies, move into non-pharmacologic management strategies, and then kind of do a wrap-up and open it up to questions. So what is spasticity? Well, there is really no single or even simple definition of spasticity. There are two types of definitions. There's a scientific definition that we are required to memorize, and there's the working definition of spasticity. The scientific definition is that it's a disorder of muscle movement or motor, or motor skills that um, results from a central nervous system injury. And the central nervous system, as most of you know, is comprised of the brain and the spinal cord. And this ultimately leads to a state of increased muscle tension or abnormal or exaggerated muscle movements. The working definition of spasticity, which is probably more meaningful to a lot of people, is that it's, uh, it can present in many different ways. Uh, it's really quite multifaceted. Spasticity is almost sort of a signature to each person because when you ask someone to define what spasticity is for them, you'll come up with many different answers. So um, it can be a resistance to stretch. So that might be someone moving a limb that has some partial voluntary movement, or it might mean resistance to movement of someone passively moving a joint. It might also mean abnormal movements. So these can be uh, in the form of clonus, which might, some of you might know, which really relates to um, 
uh, rhythmic movement, that typically the legs, but also that can happen in other uh, limbs as well, uh, that are triggered by particular positions or activities. Are most people familiar with clonus, the word clonus, and what that means? So it's a jumping type movement that your, typically your ankle or your foot will do when it's, when the calf uh, muscle is stretched. So for instance, I might be testing someone in a seated position and suddenly and forcefully stretch their foot or ankle, uh, their calf, and that will result in a jumping movement. And we'll talk about that more later in terms of the impact not only on the person, but the person sleeping next to someone. So, um, it could, so as I mentioned, it can present in terms of abnormal movements, including clonus, or that involuntary um, rhythmic action of the joint, typically in the calf joint, and the calf muscle. Or it can be exaggerated reflexes. So if you touch someone, for instance, who doesn't have a spinal cord injury, that typically won't result in any kind of abnormal um, reaction or involuntary muscle movement. But for someone with a spinal cord injury, even something that seems really innocuous, like a touch, can actually result in uh, a reflex movement of the leg or arm. There could also be flexor or extensor posturing. So this is where a limb will either bend or extend and hold that position for a period of time. And those are all considered exaggerated um, movements. So here comes the technical part of the talk, which I promise this is the only slide that relates to this, but it will make more sense in terms of when we're talking about spasticity interventions. So what causes spasticity? We don't really know the exact mechanisms. There probably are multiple mechanisms by which spasticity happens. But the, the, basic, um, uh, the basic theory is that there is a disruption in the very complex nerve circuits that we have that control reflex um, motor activity. So here's a picture of the spinal cord and sort of the nerve circuits that uh, supply the arm muscles, so the biceps that bend your arm and the triceps that extend your arm, and they have different um, activities. So what typically happens is in the muscle itself, embedded in it, are these sensory receptors that are responsive to, um, to disruptions, particularly stretch sensations. And if they're activated, such as by tapping a tendon or stretching the muscle, it automatically sends a volley of electrical activity straight up into the spinal cord, no matter how far it is from the spinal cord. And it enters the, um, the spinal cord through the back part of the spinal cord right here, through these sensory rootlets, and somehow, like a relay team, it sends volleys of electrical signals to the front part of the spinal cord, where the, the nerve cells that control motor activity reside. And then this causes this reflex activity to contract the muscle from which the sensory input actually came. Now, if you notice, if you tried to uh, contract your bicep, it would be very difficult for you to do so without the tricep, the other um, opposing muscle relaxing. So quite uh, intriguingly, what's built into the system is that as soon as this, this volley of impulse goes back to the bicep, there is a similar um, impulse that goes to the contralateral muscle to tell it to relax. This is how finely tuned this, these neural circuits are. And then controlling all of this system is actually the brain through the spinal cord, which has overall an, an inhibitory or relaxing input. So it's sort of like, I think of it as a dimmer switch. This entire system is very, very well and precisely regulated by the brain, so that, such that any injury to the brain or spinal cord disrupts that ability to control the reflex uh, motor activity, and then there are exaggerated reflexes that are, um, that are basically uh, being uncovered. Does that make sense so far? That's the technical part. So how common of a problem is spasticity in spinal cord injury? Well, it's quite common, but it's also one of the causes for um, significant decrease in quality of life. So it matters to those of us who treat um, people with spinal cord injury. The majority of people, regardless of the level of injury, will have spasticity. And almost half of the individuals will consider it problematic in surveys. And close to half require medications for this. From my experience, it's actually more than half. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, it's another important uh, factor that uh, that can contribute to a decrease in quality of life in some individuals. What areas are affected by spasticity in the body? Well, generally it's everything below the level of the spinal cord injury lesion. So there are a few exceptions to this. If there is a concurrent injury to the brain, whether it's traumatic or acquired, such as through a stroke, there can be spasticity that occurs above the level of injury, but generally it's below the level of injury. And it might affect 
just about any muscle below the level of injury. So you might think of this typically as arm or leg muscles, but this might actually be bowel or bladder. Um, it might actually be the trunk or the neck. It can be the abdomen, for instance, in some people. The unique thing about spasticity is it's not present um, at the minute someone sustains a significant spinal cord injury. Quite often, you actually lose all the reflex activity and there's a period of what's called spinal shock where there's no reflex activity at all. So usually the limbs are very loose or flaccid. But what happens over time, particularly in the first year after spinal cord injury, possibly a little bit longer, is that people develop stronger muscle um, activity that's either painful um, potentially or can interfere with movement or passive range of motion. Even once this level of spasticity um, evens out, there can be uh, quite frequently flares or exacerbations of spasms down the line, which actually are often correlate or occur when there are other medical problems going on. Quite typically, urinary tract infections, or there might be skin breakdown somewhere, some other type of infection or fractures. What's really um, problematic about trying to measure spasticity is that for most people, the spasticity is not level throughout the day. There might be different parts of the day where spasticity is more apparent than others, or different positions, for instance. So what spasticity is for a treatment team is a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of an enigma, because there are multiple ways to characterize spasticity based on the individual. And there are multiple possible mechanisms that cause spasticity. And the fact that it changes in presentation over time. It can be pretty inconsistent or episodic. It can be positional. So we've learned this over time that just because someone does not show evidence of spasticity on clinical assessment in one position doesn't mean that you won't pick it up on it in a different position. And so oftentimes we're trying to evaluate people in sitting, in uh, laying, and even during transfers or possibly walking. And then ultimately, just like pain, spasticity has an element that is a subjective experience to each person. So what that means is I can have two individuals with exactly the same level of injury and exactly the same presentation and assessment of spasticity, but they will want their spasticity um, treated quite differently, one more aggressively than the other, because it is a very personal experience. So the real challenge of spasticity to the team is that there can be a really wide range of symptoms on a continuum from very desirable to very undesirable, so that facets of spasticity can be both simultaneously beneficial and detrimental from, and from mild to severe. So it might be just a little bit of a nuisance, but it might actually be severe enough to cause safety concerns or a lot of pain. So the key to appropriate management of spasticity is really understanding the impact uh, on the individual and what aspects really need to be treated, when to treat, and how aggressively we should be treating this. So we talk about the good, the bad, and the not so ugly. We'll talk about the good first. How, how can spasticity be good for you? Well, because spasticity is basically muscle movement and motor movement, you can use it to compensate for muscles that are weak or have no uh, voluntary activity. So for someone who has hand spasticity, they may use that to actually be able to grip an item. I, I had a gentleman that I was following in my practice who liked his hand spasticity and tightness in the bending distribution because it allowed him to carry a bucket. Um, it can help transfers, and I'll actually show you a video uh, shortly that demonstrates how that can be used functionally. Some people like it because they see muscle activity and they are getting uh, a little bit of muscular um, exercise through the spasms. For some people, it allows some bladder emptying. We don't necessarily recommend this as the best form of management of the bladder in the long term because of the consequences on the kidney. Um, and it might help people maintain some bowel continence. For many people, spasticity serves as a really great early warning and detection system for anything that might require more workups, some kind of insidious evolving health process. And then some, there are some unreported uh, but as yet unproven benefits to spasticity. So here's an example of someone I saw in a clinic uh, not very long ago. All right, so uh, pretty much I'm going to uh, lean backwards to engage my uh, spasms and my hip flexors. Just think I'm gonna lock my knees out, in which case I'll then be able to swing my legs right up. Nice and easy. So he's leaning back to trigger extensor spasms, 
And he uses that so that he barely even needs to hold his legs to pivot them into and out of bed. And so this is one way that people can use their um, spasticity functionally. I asked him if we actually taught him that, and it turns out that he kind of figured that out on his own, that whenever he leaned back, his legs would kick out. And he used, he used to just sort of warn people that the legs were going to kick, kick out until he figured out that he could use it in a way to make himself more independent. So there are the bad aspects of spasticity, which is because it also results in stiffness of the muscle and the tendon, then it can affect the range of motion of a joint. So it can lead to contractures of major joints that can make it difficult to um, walk or make it difficult to dress, for instance. It might affect personal hygiene and care. And if it's um, asymmetric or different from side to side in the trunk, it can cause people to lean towards one side more than the other. It can be painful for some individuals, as I mentioned earlier. Or it might interfere with uh, safety in terms of seating or positioning, for instance, as when someone is driving over a rough road, or if you're um, pushing your wheelchair over uneven surfaces and it, and it almost or will kick you out of the chair, essentially. There are bladder accidents that happen as a result of spasticity, and so the bladder is primarily a muscle, just like your arms or legs are. And so if the muscle is overactive, then the bladder does not store enough urine and it becomes very irritable, so leakage and incontinence can happen. And there's always the indirect effects on someone's ability to work, um, live independently, drive, and the care needs. And finally, there are the not so bad or good effects, really the neutral effects of spasticity, which is, yeah, I kind of know they're there. I learned to live around it. Uh, it's present but not bothersome, and it's neither good nor bad. So the, the principle in treating spasticity is that knowing that all of these good, bad, and neutral effects of spasticity can be present in the same person. We need to basically manage the bad effects, maintain the beneficial effects, and learn to live with the effects that are considered to be neutral. And there are many reasons to treat spasticity that, um, that are outlined here. They're sort of like colors of a rainbow. It's, it's, it's a myriad uh, reasons. If you were to present to your healthcare team with a uh, problematic spasticity, they probably want to know a couple of things. So it's good to kind of think about these. One is, what is the problem? It's best to try and define the presentation and how it affects you in terms of its severity, but particularly be, um, in terms of its functional impact on your life. We would want to know where and what parts of your body are affected. Is it a local problem? You may have spasticity of the whole arm, but maybe it's only the finger flexors, the ones that bend your finger that are most problematic to you in which case we would consider it a local problem that needs treatment. Or it might be both legs or arms and legs, or it might be the belly and, uh, uh, belly and the legs. It might even be very asymmetric or um, uh, unequal from side to side. We'd want to know a little bit about when, meaning is this a recent um, problem after someone has had a spinal cord injury and stable spasticity over time? that suggests we would be working someone up for a different problem, or is someone within the first year of their injury and likely to just have a natural evolution of their, their tone problems. And then we would naturally want to learn about prior treatment and sort of the good effects and the um, adverse effects that you might have experienced. For the therapists in the room, there are many ways to evaluate spasticity. Many of you know most of these. And they can generally broadly be categorized into subjective assessments, objective assessments and functional assessments. And I put objectives in um, quotation marks because even the most objective assessment requires some level of subjective um, uh, evaluation. So they're all in some ways very subjective. But an example is the panspasm frequency score, which is a, a subjective uh, survey of an individual in terms of um, uh, how many spasms they have over what period of time. And you can see how this would be very good at capturing the intermittent spasms that happen throughout the day, but possibly not be very good at capturing that resistance to movement that we're trying to measure with range of motion. So really, the, the bottom line to this is that there's no single test that uniformly captures the picture of spasticity, and you really need a combination of tests that would then accurately portray the impact and the severity of the spasticity for each individual. And this is a dilemma with research, is how to select you know, you can't do all of them, realistically. How to select some that would then reflect what you hope it will reflect in terms of the um, benefits or um, downsides of an intervention. So let's talk about some treatment approaches. I'm going to run through quickly some of the pharmacologic medication treatments. 
Um, probably one thing to know about right off the bat is that the majority of the time we're using more than one medication. So combination treatments, whether it's medication and non-medication treatments or multiple medications, medications and injections are really quite common. This is um, a concept I need to uh, often um, provide some education to insurance companies about because some of them limit people to only one antispecity medication at a time. The, probably our, our mainstay for spasticity treatment and usually our first-line treatment is baclofen. Any of you who have had spasticity or know someone with spasticity may know someone with baclofen because, who takes baclofen because it's uh, so commonly used. It really um, works by relaxing and depressing that neural circuit that I showed you earlier in both, uh, by acting on both the, the spinal cord and the brain stem. So throughout our nervous system, we have these chemical receptors called GABA receptors. And GABA is a chemical that is uh, quite relaxing to the nervous system, and so it activates that receptor. Knowing a little bit about how the drug's life is throughout the day tells you a little bit more about why we use it so frequently. So for instance, baclofen, when given in tablet format, will peak within about two hours in its effect. And it's half-life, meaning the amount of time it takes to rid the body of about 50% of the concentration of the drug is about two to six hours. So you can tell, because we usually dose medications according to the half-life, that this is a drug that probably should be used more than once a day, and quite typically it's three or four times a day. But there are considerations related to baclofen. Even though there's very, very good efficacy noted, um, by many people based on their experience, when you really look at the hard evidence behind this, there are a few studies that are of a good quality. Again, not because it's not effective, but likely that we haven't done the right study with enough of a population of people with spinal cord injury, uh, enough to be able to call it really a, a strongly supported study. But we do know that it's effective. The primary limiting side effect to using baclofen orally is its sleepiness, uh, side effects, so your level of alertness. It can have these other side effects, but much, much less commonly. Um, and there's a wide range of doses that'll be therapeutic for each person. There might be someone where 10 milligrams two or three times a day is enough, and other individuals where they're taking 80 milligrams or more in a day. The bottom line is it's a fairly effective drug based on our experience, but the, the primary limiting factor uh, to using this and tolerating this will be drowsiness. There's a second category of medications that has a fancy name. They're called alpha-2 adrenergic agonists. And alpha-2 res uh, recept adrenergic receptors are really, uh, really quite prevalent in the cardiovascular system of the body. So they really are used primarily to control high blood pressure or hypertension. But what we found is that its mechanism of action also tends to help spasticity. And there's many different mechanisms by which it does this, primarily by altering the chemical environment in that neural circuit to enhance all the amino acids and proteins that tend to relax that circuit um, as opposed to the ones that excite it. it. Clonidine, in particular, was used for a long time because the second drug in this category, tizanidine, was actually not available until more recently. Clonidine, however, is technically not FDA-approved to be used in spasticity, and I do see it still used, but probably quite rarely at this point in time. It comes in both an oral and a patch form. Patch is a little bit longer acting than the oral formula. Um, and it did show some nice um, evidence in head-to-head -head studies that it did seem to be pretty effective versus some medications, but then not probably quite as good as baclofen. The primary considerations is because it's a cardiovascular drug, it can drop the blood pressure and heart rate. If you're pregnant, there need to be some significant consideration as to whether this needs to be continued or uh, discontinued. And uh, with clonidine in particular, there is an effect where if you suddenly stop the drug, you will have rebound uh, high blood pressure. So it's very, it needs to be withdrawn very carefully. So a more recently developed drug is tizanidine, which is also in the same category, very similar to clonidine, but has a much more specific effect for spasticity and very little cardiovascular potency. So that in theory, your risk for developing low blood pressure from this drug is significantly less than clonidine. Typically used about three times a day as well, and sort of the same considerations as clonidine in terms of um, blood pressure. 
it can cause drowsiness in a fair number of individuals, and so this is a drug that needs to be adjusted very, very carefully and, and very slowly. There are um, certain risks associated with tizanidine. Um, one of the ones we worry about is its effect on the liver, causing liver dysfunction, or its effect on blood counts. And so these are both uh, lab measures that really need to be monitored and followed over time for safety. There is also one potential drug interaction that one must be aware of, which is that it, if administered with ciprofloxacin, which is a commonly used antibiotic for bladder infections, for instance, or skin infections, it can significantly heighten the effect of tizanidine. So it basically makes tizanidine a super drug. And it's sort of like you took a whole lot of tizanidine all at once. So you can have drops in blood pressure. You can have elevation in liver function tests quite dramatically. Good evidence behind this um, doesn't seem to affect muscle power. So the bottom line is it seems this whole category of drugs seems to be effective, but you have to be aware of the risk for sedation, go low and slow with adjusting the medication, and uh, monitor blood pressure and lab work. The third category of medications that are used orally is dantrolene. And this, for many, many decades, particularly in the 70s, was sort of the mainstay of treatment along with diazepam. It's unique in its mechanism of action in that in that whole reflex loop I showed you, it actually acts directly and only on the muscle. And what it does is it decreases the strength or the force with which that muscle contracts when that reflex um, loop is activated. Usually used, um, it's a little longer half-life than the other medications, but typically used as a three-time-a-day medication, sometimes four times a day. The primary consideration and probably concern of most um, providers is that it can cause toxicity of the liver. And even though it's pretty rare that that toxicity can be fatal, it's enough that we worry about it, particularly in women who take high doses for long periods of time. So again, this is, someone, this is not a drug for someone who has any evidence of liver dysfunction, and uh, there is some uh, potential use for it in people who are very sensitive to the cognitive side effects of the other drugs, but uh, definitely something that needs where the lab work monitoring needs to be um, uh, followed. Uh, I would also say that just from my own experience, it wouldn't be the first-line medication that I would use for spasticity. It might be a good adjunct treatment. Um, to the other medications that are considered first and second line. The, the final category I'll talk about today, and of course there are many categories of medications, but these are the most common, are benzodiazepines uh, such as diazepam. And there are multiple uses for this medication to treat uh, seizure disorders or anxiety or sleep dysfunction, and it comes in multiple dosing forms, so it can be used within a hospital setting, for instance, even if people weren't taking medications by mouth. And it really has a very similar mechanism of action to baclofen, but in a slightly different receptor, GABA receptor type. It peaks fairly quickly within one hour, but has an exceptionally long half-life of 15 to 80 hours, depending on the type of benzodiazepine that you use. There is limited but good evidence, plenty of it uh, from experience. Um, in one open-label trial that compared it to baclofen seemed to have similar efficacy, but greater sedation, confusion, and fatigue associated with it in a mixed population of people with both MS and spinal cord injury. But we are very comfortable using this, and it's particularly effective for controlling spasticity at nighttime that seems to disturb people. We have a lot, because of the long tra track record of use, many, many providers, including people in the emergency room, are very comfortable with dosing um, diazepam. Again, technically not FDA approved, interestingly, for spasticity for spinal cord injury. Bottom line is it's not our first-line treatment. It, it's probably quite effective, but we use the minimal dose possible to, due to cognitive side effects and the potential for developing tolerance to that dose of medication requiring dose escalation over time, and even the potential for becoming physically dependent on the medication. Um, we had a presentation uh, in the last year uh, from an expert with regard to the medical use of marijuana, cannabis for spinal cord injury, and I would like to refer you to that particular um, video and the recent newsletter that summarizes the uh, main points of uh, the use of medical marijuana for spasticity and pain after spinal cord injury. Talk real briefly about injections and surgery, and I'll turn this over to our therapy um, staff.
So blocks or injections are a way of treating local, not widespread um, spasticity that's problematic. And uh, we prefer this because then you can limit all the, the other systemic side effects of the oral medications. And it can be used in combination, it's quite effectively used in combination with measures such as splinting or bracing or even electrical stimulation. For many years, we used temporary blocks using local anesthetics as a test dose before we actually did phenol injections, which I'll talk about briefly. But I, I would say that this is extremely rarely used now, at least within our system, and uh, just worthy of mention, um, but we're not uh, in, in widespread clinical uh, use at this time. The longer acting blocks, those that last several months in duration, are the ones that are worth spending a little bit of time on just briefly. There are two types that we, that we would talk about. Neurotoxins, including botulinum toxin, which you might be familiar with from its other cosmetic uses, and neurolytic injections with phenol. So phenol, to start off with, is a drug that actually will chemically destroy a nerve. And the purpose is to destroy that reflex loop. Um, remarkably, nerves in the peripheral nervous system outside the spinal cord are able to regrow themselves, so the effect of phenol is always considered temporary. And then uh, the other consideration for phenol is that if you inject phenol into a nerve that has a large sensory distribution in the body, if it has a lot of sensory nerve control, it has the theoretical risk for causing um, nerve pain, and so we generally avoid using it in large mixed nerves. We try and, and target nerves um, that have very little sensory distribution in the body. So those are the nerves that control your adductors, the ones that pull your legs together, and uh, the, the nerve that controls your biceps. Considerations of phenol versus a neurotoxin like uh, botulinum toxin, what it really boils down to, despite this busy slide, is are, are several things. One is that the emergence of the use of neurotoxins, including botulinum toxin in its different forms, uh, was very revolutionary in the rehab world because you no longer had to spend the time and have the technical expertise required to administer phenol injections. If you've ever had or watched a phenol injection happening, it's very laborious. You have to do repetitive stimulation to find the exact point at which the, the nerve goes into the muscle and inject there. With Botox, it has such nice diffusion that you can be generally in the muscle belly in several different areas, and it diffuses uh, quite widely. So it's very easy to administer. Um, the problem is it's very expensive, and so therefore insurance companies, the majority of them will require a fairly significant uh, pre-authorization process to get this approved for treatment. And they may actually require you to try phenol first. Um, any muscle that can be reasonably reached with, uh, for a botulinum toxin injection, if it's accessible by a needle, can be uh, treated with neurotoxin injections. The other thing to uh, be aware of is that neurotoxins are proteins that are immunologically active, so that means that people can develop neutralizing antibodies to it so that it becomes less effective over time. We don't see this the majority of the time, but that theoretical risk is there. You don't get that as much with phenol. There's a slightly different problem with scarring that happens with phenol. Um, but generally speaking, most providers would prefer to jump right to the neurotoxin injections if they had the chance. But you can, uh, because of the theoretical maximal safe limit of how much botulinum toxin you can give at any one time, they, we may actually mix um, the two and use phenol and neurotoxin at the same time for different muscles. So if you are also receiving neurotoxin injections, let's say into the bladder to control bladder spasticity, that's been another revolutionary um, uh, treatment in overactive bladder uh, in the last decade. You have to coordinate your other neurotoxin injections, whether it's cosmetic or for spasticity, at the same time to avoid a booster effect that would then uh, incite those neutralizing antibodies. So you want to be getting these injections about every three months or less often. Um, I think we'll, for the sake of time, uh, skip over the particulars of botulinum toxin, except to say that there was one interesting study where, uh, in a small case series, individuals who were treated with electrical stimulation about 30 minutes after they had their botulinum toxin injection actually had incrementally better results from the botulinum toxin. And 
We haven't really done this as a routine, um, but it would be interesting to kind of study that further. Real quickly, surgical treatments. Uh, I won't spend much time on intrathecal baclofen pumps, mostly because we had a separate SCI forum several years ago where uh, we presented information about pumps. But this is a workaround to the problem of not being able to drive enough baclofen administered orally into the space where it really needs to be, which is the fluid that baits the spinal cord. And so the way to get around that is to create a pump which has a reservoir of liquid baclofen and a computer chip in it that you can program to then deliver liquid baclofen directly into the spinal canal uh, and the fluid that around, around the spinal cord. And we found that doing it this way, people need far less baclofen overall on the order of hundreds or thousands less than the oral dose, and it can be precisely controlled um, with fewer side effects of sedation. So this is what it might look like in an individual. It's sort of a tear-shaped hockey puck attached to a catheter that winds around the body. It's, it's in the uh, abdomen, and the catheter winds around and into the spinal canal. Other surgical treatment options are considered ablative surgeries, so they're really intended to cause destruction of this, um, this reflex loop. So either we section the, we find and section problematic sensory nerves, as rootlets as they come in, or we can actually create lesions to the spinal cord itself to try and interrupt this, cir this uh, circuit. Attempts to use stimulation um, to replace the activity of the brain have not been very successful. They've been primarily quite disappointing. And in cases where spasticity then uh, proceeds to permanent foreshortening of a tendon or muscle, such as a contracture, then usually you need orthopedic surgery to actually release the tendon or even transfer a tendon to rebalance a joint that's been affected. Um, so th the bottom line to surgical treatment is it's still currently viewed as an option to be used after we've exhausted all the other non-surgical options. And for intrathecal baclofen, um, usually for people who've either failed to respond to the usual care or back where oral baclofen either doesn't work or is actually causing unacceptable sedation at the effective therapeutic doses. And certainly only should be considered in people who are accepting of the surgical risks and the maintenance requirements for a pump. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues in terms of talking about the non-medication ways to manage spasticity. So my name is Amy Eichrangel, and I'm a physical therapist. And um, I think some of the questions when people come to me and um, they're saying, oh, my, spastic my spasticity is horrible, or my muscles feel really tight and you know, there's nothing good about this. I usually try to get a little more specific with them and ask them, you know, does your spasticity help you or does it limit your walking? I think there's a range of people that um, walk on their spasticity and when they change their medications that sometimes they end up feeling a lot weaker. Um, so I think it's a question I always tend to ask people is does it help or limit your walking? Does it help or hinder your ability to get in and out of bed? Does it make it difficult to breathe or take a deep breath? Because I think a lot of times when their spasticity kicks in, that sometimes they feel like their breath is taken away a little bit from that. Um, does it cause you pain? Um, does it affect your posture? That's really what I want to know from a therapy point of view or trying to help people function better is, is it affecting your posture in a good way? Does it make you sit up a little bit better? Or does it actually, is it asymmetrical where it actually makes you shift a little bit and you are actually sitting in your wheelchair in a weird position or you're standing offset a little bit? So I usually like to know kind of where in this range of function is it helping you or not helping you. So Gerald and I want to put a little disclaimer out is that some of the things that we're mentioning, we have no um, commercial relationship with you and some we've posted links and mention name brands, but really they're just means of examples. So we talked a little bit, Dr. Ray has talked a little bit about the pros and cons of spasticity. I think what we see on the therapy side a lot too is sometimes um, when your spasticity is really bad that you actually have a difficulty managing your hygiene. So it's one thing to be careful and also it can impair your skin as well. So we're going to be talking about these, and the reason why we're talking about this range of non-pharmacological interventions is because these are things that are supported um, by some research. 
Um, and then we'll mention a little bit in the end of some of kind of these um, non-research or strongly supported research interventions as well that we'll just go over briefly. Um, so of course I'm going to talk about stretching. It's the first thing. And I think um, what's really important is that you understand that stretching is a temporary reduction in muscle tone. So it does a temporary reduction. Um, but it also allows for mechanical changes in the muscles and in tone. I think when you have spasticity, you need to be able to maintain the non-contractile parts, so the tendons. Um, you need to also have some good range in them. Um, but know that stretching, the effects of stretching can last several hours. Um, how long should you do it and how often you should do it? Generally, 30 seconds to a minute for one to five repetitions, and it really depends on when you can either see the release of that muscle or you can feel the release of that muscle. So there is quite a range of that. Um, and it's also very dependent on how severe your spasticity is and what the nature of your spasticity is. So this may not show up very well, but the stretching I'm talking, talking about is definitely not this kind of stretching. So it shouldn't be torture. You shouldn't feel like you're being put on a torture chamber. And it shouldn't be over hyper flexibility, as you see here. So there are different types of stretches. Um, there's passive stretching, where someone's actually stretching you. Or you're stretching yourself, but the muscles aren't contracting. And then there's also active stretching, where your muscles are actively moving to put you into a stretch position. And then there's active assisted stretching, where you are actually passively stretching the muscle and either you're moving it a little bit more um, through active movement. So passive stretching, active stretching, active assisted stretching, um, there's a variety of different stretches that you can do. Also know that there's um, low amplitude, longer duration types of, of um, stretching, and that would be more just positioning. So if you're really tight in the front part, you're your pecs, and you're laying down with a towel roll behind your back, and you're just doing a really low amplitude, it's not causing a lot of pain, it's just a really gentle stretch, you can do that for a longer duration. So positioning and splinting is considered low amplitude, longer duration. And then there's also higher amplitude, shorter duration stretches where you're doing it for seconds, maybe 30 seconds to 60 seconds, versus your longer duration, lower amp amplitude stretches can be for hours. So stretching what to stretch, these are if you tend to go into some type of flexor position or something where you're flexed in, biceps, are important to stretch. Your pec muscles are important to stretch. Really, your abdominal muscles are incredibly important to stretch when it comes to standing, being in a standing frame, seating, in sitting, in a wheelchair, sitting at a chair, sitting at bed. Your wrist flexors, your hands, hip flexors are not stretched often. Yet they're incredibly important when it comes to standing, using a standing frame, and even when you're sitting. So even in wheelchair position, your hip flexors are actually attached to your pelvis. So if they're tight, then what they'll do is they'll actually pull on your pelvis and change your position in how you sit and affect how your skin um, and affects your skin as well. And then hamstrings. So if you tend to go into flexion, these are the muscles that you'd want to stretch. If you tend to go into extension where your legs kick out or your back um, goes into extension, then you'd want to stretch your shoulder blades, your lower back, your hands, your quadriceps, and your calf muscles. So this is just a little video um, of just how to kind of stretch your trunk muscles. Um, this is the a way to do it if you have good upper extremity function. If you don't have good upper extremity function um, or you can't do this, there's also ways that you can do it um, with someone's assistance. And really how long you stretch is dependent on when you feel that muscle release or when you see that muscle release. So it's very important to stretch in diagonal patterns as well and in lateral patterns as well, especially if you notice there's a shift in your hips and sitting. So you can do this at a desk, at a dining room table, especially for people who feel like their breath kind of catches them when they have spasms. It's important to really stretch through your intercostal muscles as well. 
And then this is just another stretch. All these um, directions for stretches as well as upper extremity, your arms and your leg stretches, there's links on the website for the exercise programs that we give um, our clients. So this is just a self-stretching program. So being able to stretch your leg. So I'm stretching my right leg and I'm stretching my left leg. That's a hamstring stretch. And then using a towel, you know, one of the things to realize too is you don't want to overstretch your muscles, especially your hip muscles. So it's important not to be over flexible where you feel like your nose can touch your knee because that affects the integrity of your hip as well. But you can do your trunk. Another important thing that people tend to not do is getting on your stomach, and this is a great way of stretching your hip flexors. It's also a great alternative way to sleep. And depending on where your fixation is in your spine, if you have a fixation in your spine, you may only be able to get to this level, or you might be able to press up into your hands, or up onto semi, onto your hands. And if you can, you can go all the way up as long as you keep your hips down. You just need to be really careful um, depending on how fixed your spine is. So the next thing I want to talk about is just strengthening. So you can strengthen in two different ways. You can strengthen for when you're talking about managing spasticity, is you can exercise the opposing muscle. So if your biceps tend to spasm, then you can exercise the opposite muscle. Or you can also exercise a spastic muscle, because that actually might increase the voluntary movement and decrease the involuntary movement that occurs in that muscle. So I think a lot of times people say, oh, I don't, I'm not going to exercise my quad muscles because I'm super strong in my quad muscles because I have big spasms that happen out of it. Well, you're not necessarily, you may be strong at a spastic level of movement, but you're not necessarily strong when it comes to length of the muscle and in movement throughout the range. So it's also important to exercise that muscle if you can through that range. Most of the studies when it comes to strengthening and spasticity come from stroke and brain injury research, should just know that as well. And there was also a forum that Kristen Copain talked about on strengthening. But just to update it a little bit, know that the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines, you should do 60 to 80% of a one rep maximum when you do stretching, when you do strengthening. But know that you should be testing yourself every two weeks. It's not that you should, I do this all the time. I tend to just stay with the same amount of weight for weeks, months, years of doing the same. I think I'm still on four pounds with upper extremities right now. I've been doing that for three years. So just know that you should be testing yourself every two weeks to make sure that you're actually at 60 or 8% of your one rep maximum. And that three sets of 12 reps maximum, and when that becomes really easy, you need to move on. You need to progress yourself. And that they also recommend three times a week for a minimum of six to 12 weeks. And they have a great PDF specific for spinal cord injury um, and strengthening. And that's also on the link on the website. Also now, a little note, and this has nothing to do with what the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines, but my little guidelines are, is you want to work out of the patterns that cause your spasms. Some people like to stay in these ranges because they feel like they can lift their max. But I really believe that for you to be strong is that you need to be strong in a really lengthened position. You want long, lean, strong muscles. You don't want to stay in this range. You want to stay out to in. You want the full range of strength. So weight-bearing and standing, why it may work, it's a prolonged stretch of the muscles that become tight, primarily your calf muscles, your hip flexor muscles, which again, your hip flexor muscles and your abdominal muscles significantly impact your seating, how you sit in your wheelchair affect how you function, as well as if you do stand or use a standing frame, it significantly helps um, affects the pressure on your lower back. So the effects of, of weight-bearing and standing is that it lasts um, maybe until the next day, and the benefits are obviously greater than just stretching alone because you've added the weight brain factor onto it. The dosing is unclear. 30 to 16 minutes, five days a week seems to be what people, what some of the studies have, start, have used. And just standing examples, so that there's just standing, either standing with braces or standing on your own. There's, I thought this guy was really cool. 
talking on the phone on a standing frame. And then there's also a standing frame that you can actually use your arm, your arms to push the legs to help a lot. This is significantly helpful for doing a little bit of cardio work, but also, again, getting those hip flexors. And then standing power wheelchairs, and then also standing manual chairs. Um, I would have to say that to get the full hip extension, if that's what you're looking for, Full hip extension is very difficult to get with the manual chairs, um, standers, and the power wheelchair standers as well. And then if people were doing therapy during my time, um, <laughs> they were using these little boxes. So you had these box frames that people were using. Um, so they still sell them. They're significantly cheaper than standing frames. Then there's also, you know, I wanted to mention this because I wasn't going to mention this, but I feel like it's something that I've been looking into for the last three or four years. Um, whole body vibration, and when I first heard of whole body vibration, I thought of this, but it's not. <laughs> so whole body vibration, the evidence on it in spinal cord injury is emerging, but I have to say it's very limited. Um, but why it may work is it has a vibration paradox is where it actually has some inhibitory qualities, but also has excitatory qualities to it. Um, in a recent study with incomplete spinal cord injuries that measured just the quadriceps spasticity is that it lasts six to eight days. Um, the dosing in the studies are three days per week for four weeks. They do 45-second bouts. You're actually in um, 30 degrees of knee flexion. You're not in full, full standing. Um, and the vibration frequency was varying between 20 to 50 hertz. But what is very unclear is how much and how long may be therapeutic. Um, concerns with its impact also on osteoporosis as well. So there really isn't great research to tell us what the dosing is, and there also might be some detrimental effects to it. But just know that that's kind of an emerging research I thought was important to mention today, because you will hear a lot about it. And these are just the different types of vibration, um, whole body vibration. These are just how the setups were done at the studies. One was on a standing frame, um, and then they put the vibra vibration plate underneath it and then um, one on a standing frame. But know that they were all placed in about 30 degrees of knee flexion when they did, did it. So I'll hang, pass this over to Gerilyn now. Hi, my name is Gerilyn Bertolotti. Can everyone hear me? Um, and I'm an occupational therapist at Harborview. And I'll be talking tonight briefly, because I know we're almost out of time, about um, some other modalities that may impact spasms. First of which is splinting. Splinting, um, there's two types of splinting that we'll get into, uh, static splinting and dynamic splinting. Splinting allows for, a pro, um, or provides for a prolonged muscle stretch. It allows for a joint to be positioned uh, that does not elicit any spasms. And it prevents contracture, which is um, tightening of the muscles, ligaments, tendons, uh, bony structures of the joint. Static splinting, static splinting is a, a splint that doesn't change. So um, between the client and the therapist, you'll find an optimal position for that extremity, whether it be your arm, your hand, your leg, your ankle, what, whatever it may be. It enables a prolonged stretch. It's uh, a little less complicated than a dynamic splint, so it's easier to get on to get off. Um, the duration is um, typically what's shown to be beneficial is longer than two hours, and our hope would be that you'd be able to tolerate it a splint overnight, hopefully, so it's not um, a nuisance to you, and while you're sleeping, you can get a nice prolonged stretch, which is what Amy was saying about that low amplitude, longer duration stretch. You'll want to be careful that you're always checking your skin and making sure that you don't have any pressure points with any kind of splint and that there's no irritation anywhere. Here are some examples, just a couple examples of static splints that I probably a lot of you are familiar with. The top one being a resting hand splint, which again can just position your hand so not too tight with the flexors or not too much with the extension, but a good neutral base so you can have both flexion and extension. 
Um, below that is a serial cast, which some of you may be familiar with. That's a casting series that can position your ankle or actually any joint. And the idea behind that is it's a static splint temporarily, but then maybe after five days a week, you get a little more range of motion in that joint and you can make that static splint now a little um, more beneficial for your joint. And then the one on the right is just a posterior foot splint to help the ankle stay in a good, healthy position. Dynamic splinting on the other side is a splint that moves. So it provides a low load, prolonged duration stretch to a group of muscles. It allows um, a consistent stretch at the end range of that motion for a permanent, um, for a more permanent change. And what a dynamic splint can also do is it provides that tension. Um, maybe you're trying to get your fingers out into extension or straightening. So it can provide some tension to get you out there. But if you do have a spasm or pain or something that's uncomfortable to you and your hand wants to come in because it's a, um, it's automatic, you're not doing it voluntarily, the dynamic splint would allow you to have that motion. When you're relaxed again, it'll put you into a, um, the dynamic tension. Duration for dynamic splinting, because it has that tension load base now, you want to start off at a smaller scale, maybe 15 minutes with your therapist or the person you're working with, and make sure that there are no skin um, irritation, no um, joint problems or no pain, increased pain. A lot of times when you take off a dynamic splint, if it's on too long, it could create some pain. So you want to just take it real gradual and eventually build up to greater than two hours. Um, and you want to try to modify that tension where you can take a little bit more, a little bit more stretch every three to five days. These are just a couple examples of dynamic splinting. The two on the left, the ankle and the elbow, is a dyna splint, which is um, a tension-based dynamic splint that is controlled just through a screwdriver, so um, pretty easy to increase that tension. And it can be for elbows, knees, wrists, fingers, ankles, toes, um, pretty a lot of choices there. And then the other one on the left is a sable um, splint, and that more research with that has been done for folks with head injury or stroke, and that helps to the um, fingers tend to want to come in and flex, bend, and that splint kind of helps you extend, so then potentially using that spasticity or tone to grab things to grasp and release. Thermal modalities, cold and heat. Um, cold, first off, um, causes slowing of nerve conduction. It can decrease the muscle spindle activity and decrease the central nervous system excitability. Dose is typically no longer than 20 minutes. Um, icing, even though it's cold, it can also create a burn, so you want to be careful of that and not do um, too long of icing. The duration has only been shown to last a little less than an hour, so not real... Um, long duration, but it can be an effective treatment. And again, you want to just be checking out your skin, anything that you're providing um, that to. You want to make sure there's no red areas. Another, The other part of um, thermal is heat, um, and that's shown to increase blood flow, which can increase oxygen and nutrients to the muscle. Uh, dose, again, is about 20 minutes, and of course, you can burn yourself with the skin, so you want to be really conscientious. If you're um, not able to feel that part of your body that you are either providing heat or ice to, you want to make sure you're um, really thinking about that and making sure there's no burns happening. Examples of some heat are hot packs, hot bath, paraffin wax. Another modality that is shown to help spasms is electrical stimulation. Electrical, um, it's an electrical current uh, to the muscle to activate the nerves and create a contraction of specific muscles. It can um, simulate a visible contraction, so you'll actually, the current will go into the specific muscle that you've um, deemed, and it will show a contraction. The good thing there is it can be placed wherever you're having the spasms. It can be both to decrease the excitatory um, uh, spasm or to help to inhibit um, the muscle as well. So you can do both the opposing, the primary mover, for instance, maybe the bicep, as well as the opposing tricep and where you place your pads. 
Another form of electrical stimulation is called TENS or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and that's at a lower dose of current. And so you don't actually see a visible contraction, but it has been shown to be effective on sensory receptors, so could potentially um, decrease spasms and potentially decrease pain as well. Next examples of some electrical stimulation are um, an arm and uh, leg ergometry system, so an arm bike or a leg bike uh, that's uh, created with the electrical stem. The one on the top left is a BioNess uh, electrical stem unit for the hand, and that just creates some flexion and extension. And again, you can control that whether you just want extension, just want flexion, or hopefully even um, produce some function with a grasp and release. And then the one on the bottom right is just a smaller e-stem unit, less than $100, that if we found that e-stem does is working for a person with spinal cord injury and um, something that they can do at home, and we'll send them home with a home program for that. The other interventions, um, hydrotherapy, repetitive TMS, massage, acupuncture, hippotherapy, taping, and lycra garments. So those are the ones that Amy wanted to mention because they, you might have heard about those or read about those. Um, they're not ones that we do actively, at least at Harborview right now, but they are, there is literature written about them for um, spasticity. Um, so real quickly, I wanted to mention that there is a website called the Model, Model Systems Knowledge Translation Center which has consumer-directed information about different topics related to spinal cord injury. And there's one on spasticity, which has, for instance, ex for example, um, questions that you might ask yourself and your provider if you would like treatment for uh, spasticity in terms of what might be most suitable and appropriate for you. So, so to wrap up, sort of the main take-home points of this talk are that the experience and the impact of spasticity has characteristics that are sort of most unique signatures to each individual, and it can have a combination of beneficial and detrimental effects and neutral qualities that, um, that um, often will simultaneously coexist in the same person. And treatment really focuses on managing the detrimental effects while preserving the beneficial effects. Evidence-based treatment for spasticity presents a challenge to the treatment team for a variety of reasons, both in the assessment of spasticity, the definition of spasticity, and the way that these studies have been conducted. There probably are many things that work for spasticity, either singly or in combination, but it's difficult to prove that in the population with SCI uh, without further studies. So, so this is therefore uh, an area that lends itself where, well to really the treatment uh, team that uses, a uh, treatment approach, sorry, that uses the entire team, because you need the perspectives of everyone, including the person who's affected by this, their caregivers or family member, and different treatment staff um, in the team, whether it's physicians, the double providers, or um, uh, therapy um, staff who are working with the individual, so that we can come up with the best combination of treatments that uh, would then most appropriately address the specificity problems that you have. So at this point, we'd like to thank you for attending the session tonight, and would very much appreciate your feedback through the evaluation forms, and we'd like to open it up for any questions that the audience might have. So the, the question was, um, uh, many of the specialty medications that exist out there really are, uh, have very short half-lives, so there's nothing that's sort of in a longer format that you can use. Probably the exception to that is the clonidine or diazepam, for instance, that have longer half-lives. But you're right, we're all waiting for a, an extended release baclofen um, that would then not need to be dosed throughout the day. It's very difficult to remember to take these medications. Um, so I agree with you completely. That, that is a drawback to this medication. This is why patch formulations have become popular, particularly for clonidine and intrathecal baclofen, so that you don't have to worry about that. So I think the question was um, that spasticity and uh, contractors seem to have, have been mentioned in the same breath throughout this presentation. And I think if you don't, um, if you have spasticity and you don't stretch to your range that's available, um, then because that muscle length isn't allowed to really open up, then I think there's potential for shortening of your tendons, ligaments, other kind of non-contractile 
um, tissues around that joint. So that, you know, it's not just in the extremities or in the hands, but it's also what I see significantly is in the trunk. I see a lot of asymmetrical um, spasticity and people just kind of sit in it. Um, and what happens is because we don't really address the stretching of the trunk, that they just, um, the non-contractile kind of the ligaments and the tendons get really tight around it as well. Um, and then with that, it makes it even harder to stretch out. So I think um, it's, a, for me, I see a lot of it in how people sit, how people stand. And I, I know for Gerilyn, I think she sees a lot of kind of people who, if you don't stretch out your hands properly, um, then you see a lot of inability to kind of use your hands for function as well. So tone really refers primarily to how much muscle activity there is. And it can be high tone, normal tone, or low tone. So quite typically with most spinal cord injuries, with the exception of cauda equina injuries, the bot most bottom part of the spinal cord, uh, the, the uh, state that results in terms of muscle tone is usually high. So usually it's hypertonia which is what spasticity is. Spasticity in particular, when it's defined in scientific circles, is a velocity-dependent hypertonia, or high tone. So that means that the faster we move a limb through its range of motion, the more resistance you're going to get. So if I, for instance, someone has a spastic hamstring, and they're tight, if I move that very slowly, I may get only little resistance, but if I move it fast, I will get much more resistance. And so. When, uh, quite commonly when we're seeing people in clinic, when I'm moving a limb, I will move it slowly, I may move it faster, and I may actually stretch it very fast to try and uh, determine whether um, the problem is spasticity or a different type of hypertonia problem, which can result from Parkinson's disease, for instance, which results in rigidity hypertonia. So there are different types of high tone problems. Spasticity being uh, one that's unique to brain and spinal cord injury and disorders. Thank you for listening to the SCI Forum podcast. To learn more or to make a donation, please visit sci.washington.edu.